So these are what leaders look like of movements. We're going to open up the scripture and see what the scripture says about a movement leader. Uh, Luke chapter 10. In fact, you don't even need to open it. I'm going to story tell it. I'm going to bring us into the story because the purpose of all Bible study is to bring yourself into the Bible story and feel the impact it had on the original audience and bring that impact into your life today. So here's what Luke 10, 30 through 37 about the Good Samaritan. This is what it sounds like. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going along on the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you incur. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and you do likewise. You see, this parable, this story, when Jesus is telling this, they all know the exact place that Jesus is referring to. He didn't have to go long. He, they knew exactly, because this is a place from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem's 800 meters above sea level to Jericho, that's 250 meters below sea level. So it traverses 26 kilometers, going down 1,000 kilometers in a very short time. So there's hairpin curves. There are boulders that have fallen down on the mountain and stopped the, the road. There are robbers around every corner waiting to pounce on somebody. It's called the blood, the blood road because everybody's attacked on this road all the time. We have a road like this in Papua, outside of our city where we live. We were 20 years in the jungle, saw movement, then we were moved to the city and start working with problem young people, where we see a movement happening now. But going out of our city to the end of the jungle, there are roads like this, and every five kilometers, somebody comes out with a machete and asks for money. I know exactly what, this kind of place. Maybe you do too. And there's four people in this story that Jesus refers to. We're going to put ourselves in these four people's place. The first one is the helpless victim. The guy that gets robbed. It looks like he's a Jew. And he's going on the long road alone. Nobody travels on this road alone. Especially if you're taking something valuable or money. You always grow in groups. But this guy's on his own. And he gets attacked. And you might think, the guy should have known better. Why did he go along? He should have known better. Why did you allow your daughter get lured into the city, into prostitution? You should have known better. Why did you marry that guy that beats you with an iron fist every day? You should have known better. Why did you build your house on a floodplain so when a tsunami comes, it takes it out? 
you should have known better. But folks, people don't know better. The God of this age has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so they can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And people don't know better. You can watch on the news disasters and wars and in Indonesia we're the laboratorium of disaster relief. There's something happening every week. And you can watch all this and start your love becomes cold. And you don't feel what people are going through. And you think they should have known better. Well, they don't know better. And don't allow your love to become cold. Just because there's so many happening. We have 11 volcanoes erupting in Indonesia right now at the same time. Never has been like this. Lombok two months ago had a terrible earthquake. Then the tsunami in Palu last month. And every time something happens, we're there the first day with people caring, reaching out to them. Because we don't want our love to become cold. And refugees, this is an issue everybody's talking about. Europe, America, maybe in Malaysia. Folks, refugees are the new normal. It's not going away. There's going to be more and more because there's more and more wars, there's more and more disasters, and people have to flee for their life, and there will be refugees, and we better know how to take care of refugees. So there's the helpless victim. And then the second person in the story is this sincerely spiritual person, sincerely religious, the priest. He comes walking by and he sees the guy and maybe in his heart he wants to kneel down and help, but he knows if he kneels down and touches this guy, rolls him over and it turns out he's dead, then he's just touched a corpse and he's unclean for seven days. He cannot minister in the temple can't bring offerings. It's going to affect his job. He might lose his job if he helps this guy. So his religious profile is more important to him than helping someone in need. You know, sometimes we know people are in need around our community and we want to help, but they're kind of the bad crowd. If we hang out with them, we might get labeled the same as them. We got to guard our religious profile. When we moved from the jungle to the city 20 years ago to start working with a new tribe called the Younger Generation. They have their own language, their own culture, and we're losing a whole generation. So we moved to the city and we started with 12 drunks on the street, 12 boys, a gang. We brought them into our home to live with us. That was our first congregation. I figured if Jesus can begin with 12 delinquents, I can begin with 12 delinquents. They fell in love with Jesus, stopped drinking, got their life turned around, and I tried to put them in local churches for ongoing discipleship. Didn't work. Because on the inside they had changed, but outside they were still kind of rough looking. And they didn't know the language of the church. You know, we have two languages. We have outside language and inside language. They don't know the inside language. And they were restored in community life with us. Where 24-7, they have to be responsible for their thought life, for their hearts. If I just put them in a church as a Sunday service, they can't make it. So we had to start a new denomination. We call it the Problem People Christian Church. And in the beginning, it was all boys. Our whole congregation was male. We had very few females the first years. All these boys off the street. And we got labeled. People labeled us. Oh, that's Jim Yost. He has the church of the drunks. 
Then prostitutes started coming to Jesus, getting out of sex trafficking, and they labeled us, oh, that's the church of the prostitutes. In the beginning, I was offended at that. But then I started thinking, who did Jesus hang out with 2,000 years ago? Who was attracted to Jesus? Problem people. I kind of think all the front rows, wherever Jesus was at, were all full of drunks and prostitutes. Why were they attracted to Jesus? Because they knew Jesus was the one person on earth who would accept them just the way they are. And would challenge them to be more than that. We often sing in church, we want to be like Jesus. Do you understand what you're asking? Because if you're like Jesus, sinners will be attracted to you. If sinners are not attracted to you, you need to ask, why am I not like Jesus? So the religious profile person here, that was more important guarding his image than helping someone in need. If you were to come to my house in the afternoon, what would you see? At four in the afternoon, we're on the outskirts of a city that's emerging, big city now. We have a, a hectare and a half of land. We have a chicken farm with a thousand chickens and fish ponds and we grow all of our own food. And we have a medical clinic that my daughter Amy runs. Amy, born and raised in Papua, age 12, helping mom in the clinic in the jungle, helping women deliver babies at age 12, giving injections, doing suturing of wounds from tribal wars, all at age 12. So she naturally gravitated to medical training in America to get the theory that matched the practice she already knew how to do. And then she came back and opened a medical clinic for the poor. She has 100 patients every day. So in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, the patients start coming into our place to come to our medical clinic. And they come into the clinic, who serves them? Well, of the 20 kids that live with us, all the girls have been trained by Amy to be medical officers. They help in the clinic. So if you come into our clinic, a 12-year-old will take your vital signs. A 14-year-old will give you your injection. A 16-year-old will dispense the medication. And they're really good, very professional. You get your medicine, you don't go home because medicine is no good until it's activated with prayer. So you get your medicine and you come out and you sit around two basketball courts that we have in our front yard because we do basketball church. My wife is a basketball coach. Three years ago, she was named top basketball coach in the country. And we restore problem young people through basketball. So we have 80 kids that come and play basketball every afternoon from kindergarten, elementary, junior high, high school, college age, about 80 kids. And they'll be sparring on the courts and my wife will be having them play. And the patients all sit around the edge of the court waiting for their prayer. And then there's a timeout for 10 minutes. And all these sweaty basketball players go to the perimeter of the basketball court and lay hands on the sick and pray for them. Sweaty basketball players praying for the sick. They get their prayer, and they go, and they're replaced by new patients, and they play ball some more, and then there's timeout, and you pray again for the sick. If you ask all of our kids, why you do this? This is what they'll say. This is who we are. This is what we do. Because mission is a natural DNA of your life. It's a lifestyle. It's not something you're going to go do someplace else. It's who you are 24-7. A disciple-making lifestyle. The third person in this story is the Levite. What's a Levite? You got Levites in Kuala Lumpur? Yeah, there's lots of Levites here. 
Levite is a social activist. The Levite cared about the community. He was involved in religious stuff, but also social stuff. Everybody knew he's somebody that cared. He comes by and he sees the guy that's been robbed. He also thinks twice. Hey, I can help this guy, but if I roll him over and he's still alive, and his friends, are he's a robber and he's, he's feigning, he's pretending to be robbed. And all of his friends are around the corner waiting. And when I kneel down to help him, they're all going to come and rob me. I better guard my safety and security. That's more important than helping somebody in need. Lots of people want to be social activists from Starbucks on their laptop. Keep it safe. But folks, Jesus has said in Luke 10, 3, I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. Because movements are happening in the most dangerous places on the face of the earth today. Lambs amongst wolves. I don't know how many sheep herders we have. If you raise sheep, would you raise your hand? Sheep herders? Okay, I'm the only one. When I was in the jungle, I did a Bible translation for a tribe. But there's one verse in the Bible I had a problem with. I couldn't translate. Jesus is the Lamb of God. There are no sheep in Papua. They don't know what a lamb is. So what do I, how do I translate it? Jesus is the pig of God? Doesn't work. So I had to import sheep and goats from New Zealand. I raised sheep and goats in the jungle. I know sheep and goats. Goats are smart. If the, tri the tropical rains come down and the floodwaters come up, goats are smart. They find high ground. But sheep are stupid. They just sit there. The water comes up, they sit there. The water comes up, they drown. They don't even move. They're stupid. But sheep know the voice of the shepherd. If I'm with them every day, they just follow me. They don't look left or right. They just follow the shepherd. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Wolves are normal. Danger is normal. Get over it. Just follow the shepherd where he's leading. You know, the Levite probably had a reputation he wanted to guard. He'd probably done good things in the past. Don't allow what you've done in the past to affect what you're doing right now. There's a verse in the end of Luke 9, verse 62, where Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, anybody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back isn't fit for the kingdom of God. Don't look back. Say it with me. People ask me, Jim, why, what is your end result of, of all this work with problem young people? Mission? How can you send problem young people out as missionaries? Easy. I do what Jesus says. Don't look back. Don't look back at your past failures. See where the shepherd's leading you right now. Don't look back at your past successes. Lots of churches build this year's program based on last year's success. Stop it. Every January, I get all my leaders together and we close the books on last year. Last year's success was for last year. We start out the new year bankrupt with God. Zero in our bank account, zero program, and we say, God, what's our father's business in our land today, this year? We want to be about our father's business. I've lost everything in my missionary career three times. I've lost all ministry, all good name, all assets. I've had to start out zero, bankrupt with God, three times. Every January when we go into the new year, God asks me, Jim, are you willing to lose it all again? 
And I have to answer, yes, Lord, I'm willing to lose it all again. Now we come to the one who does the stuff, the Samaritan. Verse 33, when Jesus says, and a Samaritan comes by, everybody listening to this story, they know exactly what Jesus is talking about. The Samaritans, they hated the Samaritans. They probably thought Jesus is going to say, oh, the Samaritan came and took all the clothes off the body and did some terrible things. But no, the Samaritan is one that does the stuff, the will of the Father. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews had been feuding for 800 years. If you remember in John 4, the Samaritan woman at Sychar asked Jesus, where should we worship, on the hill or in Jerusalem? That's because they'd had a place of worship on the hill, and the Jews had come in and burned it to the ground. And in retaliation, they'd gone to Jerusalem and laid bones in the, in the temple. They had this war going on. There was a wounded heart. Jesus was even called a Samaritan. That was a dirty name, the son of a Samaritan. And Jesus says the Samaritan did the stuff. He's the one that lent a hand. The least expectant one. We have a youth movement going on in Asia. I mean, a few years ago, I was in a major city in Indonesia. And I did a mission conference for all the churches. And at the last day, the pastors of the city, the senior pastors, wanted to have a private meeting with me. So we went in this room, and they opened their hearts up, and they said, Jim, there's no more young people in our churches. And I said, why are you surprised? This is going on all around the world. Young people are leaving church. They're not leaving God. They're leaving church. Young people are not so interested in formal institutional religion, but they have spiritual hunger higher than ever before. It's just we don't know how to talk to them. I said, if they're not coming to church, you need to take church to them. So I went out looking across the city for them, and I found them. Every Saturday night, behind the mall, next to the waterfront, 10,000 young people gather. I counted them, 10,000. They're not in one place. They're kilometer after kilometer in small groups. The motorcycle gang, the street basketball gang, the hip-hop gang, the breakdance gang, the rapper gang, the LGBT gang, every stripe and color. And they don't go to the mosque, they don't go to the church, they could care less about religion. But they have spiritual hunger. So we start going in, doing the discovery game. I go on campus and I'll say to students, you want to do a Bible study? No, I've got to go to class. You want to do some gaming? Yeah, let's do some gaming. Especially if you're in Malaysia, every young person wants to gaming, do gaming here. So we do the discovery game where we do interactive learning, acting out a passage of scripture and asking questions and learning a truth from Jesus that helps us in our struggles in life. And after a year, we're in 24 of these groups in this city. We have 2,000 kids that consider themselves members of our church after one year. But they've never gone to a church service on Sunday. Every day, they're in these small groups learning the teachings of Jesus that impact their life. The church of the future, folks, I believe in 10 years, 80% of what we know as church today will not be around. Only 20% is going to be around. 80% is going to be brand new. Because the world is changing rapidly and young people are demanding a new expression. If we don't have it, we'll lose a whole generation. So notice the two things about the Samaritan. He had strong credit with the world. The innkeeper allowed him to take a bill. 
That's because he was honest and trustworthy. People knew that he was involved in the community. And secondly, he did the Father's will. He, he knew he reached down and touched somebody in need. He did what God would have done if he was right there. On the last day, we're going to be judged not by our religious activities in church, but are we doing a lifestyle that resembles Jesus in the community? I go places, I ask churches, if your church was closed down this week, would your city miss you? And the most churches I do this with, they say, Jim, if we closed down, our, church, our city wouldn't know, even know it. I know if our church closed down where we're at in the city in Papua, our city would miss us. I got a phone call from the parliament one day. They said, we've done a commission to combat AIDS and narcotics in Papua, and we put you on the commission, Jim. I said, why? I don't know anybody in the government. Because, they answered, because we see narcotics and AIDS are drastically rising, and we in the government don't know what to do. And we see in your city, street kids are getting their lives turned around. Criminality is going down. Would you please show the government how to do it? The government coming to the church to solve social problems. Folks, that's the New Testament church. That's the book of Acts. They didn't throw it off to the government. We have the answers to social problems because it all comes back to a broken self-image in God. So this guy is the one. And the, his whole question is, who is my neighbor? It goes back to the verses before when Jesus said, the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? Or you could define this in another way. You could say it, where is my mission? And Jesus is saying your mission is here, now, and everywhere. It's a DNA. It's a disciple-making lifestyle. If I'm not doing it here, I won't do it there. This is who I am. This is what I do. And the three things we see from Jesus out of this story, we have to be willing to help anyone, even those who have made bad choices and should have known better, we need to be willing to help them. We should be willing, secondly, to help anybody from whatever background they are and not to judge them because the character of God's love is shown when we help people. And lastly, true love has to be evidenced in action. That's your theme of your mission conference this year. True love from God is always evidenced in action. Jesus said in the end, go and do likewise. This world is not going to be changed with our good music, it's not going to be changed with our good teaching. It's not going to be changed by gathering lots of people in a, in, a, in a location. This world's going to be changed by love in action. When we had our movement of God in the jungle, there were five villages right around our hut. Four villages, all the people came to faith very quickly. It was a result of a little boy that drowned and God raised him back from the dead. And their movement happened. But there was one village that was obstinate, that did not respond. Because the leader of that village, the tribal chief, Kauai, forbid anybody from his village to come to our ministry. His wife snuck out a couple times, came to something we were doing, went home. He beat her to a pulp. He didn't allow anybody to come. His wife got pregnant one, two, three times, delivered a baby, but it was stillborn every time. She'd never given birth to a live baby. When she got pregnant the fourth time, Kauai allowed her to come to our clinic that my wife does. And she gives prenatal care to a lot of women. And she helped 
Calway's wife deliver her baby, and it was delivered alive, the first live birth. And my wife, my wife did something that she always does with, with newborn babies and their mothers. Because many years ago in America, there was a businessman who his entire life and profession, whenever he went traveling to other cities and stayed in a hotel, when he checked out from the hotel, he'd always go to the bathroom and take the little bar of hotel soap and pocket it before he left the hotel. I know you don't do that in Malaysia, but Americans do that. And after a whole lifetime, he had a huge box of these little hotel soaps in his garage. He didn't know what to do with them. He thought, maybe Jim Yost can use them in the jungle. Maybe he thought I didn't bathe or something. So he sent it. And I still remember the day that came. Because that was when we were deep in the jungle. One time a month, a float plane would come and land on the water, bringing food, bringing letters from home. We always valued one contact a month to the outside. And the plane came, and we ran to the riverbank, and this big box comes out. And I open it up. Soap. You can't eat soap. But my wife had this great idea. She'd take every time a woman gives birth to a baby, she gives the mother a bar of motel soap and instructs her how to take the baby to the river and bathe the baby every day. So he gave, she gave Calway's wife this bar of soap, and every day she'd go down to the river to bathe the baby. A week goes by, the baby's still alive. A month goes by, the baby's still alive. Three months go by, the baby's still alive. And Calway decides to give the baby a name. He wasn't going to give it a name because he knew it would just die. He waited three months, gave it a name, came to my house. First time to come to my house. He sat with me and he opened up his heart. He said, from the day you came here, Jim, I've opposed you. I haven't allowed anybody from my village to come to any ministry that you do. And yet you and your wife love me and my wife so much to give a little bar of soap so that our baby could live. I want to hear more about this Jesus. And that day, Calway gave his life to Jesus. He opened up his whole village to come, and a whole village came to Jesus because of a little bar of soap. <laughs> Folks, you don't know what impact one little thing you do is going to have in a family, in a region, in a city, in a country. I'm going to close with this. A few years ago, two pastors from the big, a big church to the biggest church in Singapore, they came on mission trip to Indonesia. They started in Jakarta and they ended in Papua. They were in Papua on a Sunday. They came to our celebration with 700 young people from bad backgrounds that love Jesus with all their heart. They sat in the middle enjoying the service. They didn't have anything to do. They just wanted to enjoy it. At the end of the service, our leader, Franz is his name, he was my disciple, he was drunk on the street, now he's our pastor. Franz sees, hey, there's two guests from far away, Singapore. They probably had to pay a lot of money for a plane ticket, we better help them. He doesn't know they're from the largest church in Singapore, the most wealthy church in Singapore. He doesn't even know where Singapore is, how many bins in the river till you get to Singapore. He just knows we gotta help. So he says, hey, kids, don't go home. Let's take an extra offering today to help our guests. And everybody starts flooding up to the front, putting money in a basket. And then he calls these two pastors up front to receive the offering. As he puts the offering in their, their hands, they start crying. And they say, Jim, we've been on mission trips around the world. Everywhere we go, they know we're from a large, wealthy church in Singapore. Everybody puts their hands out to ask us for money. This is the first time someone's given us an offering. And they're crying. And I respond, that's because our kids don't know they're poor. 
they don't know they're poor. Poor isn't here. Poor is here. God is using poor people. And the money you folks give for mission has a huge impact in the world. Please believe this. This isn't a game we're doing today. You're changing the world through the commitment that you make today. A little bar of soap, a little offering is going to change the world. Let's close our eyes and pray. Father God, right now, I ask that the voice of Jim Yost is not being heard, but the voice of your spirit, every single person in this room will hear. Thank you for the mission's heart that you put on people here. It's been invested. The seeds of mission have been invested for years. Thank you for what you've done here, Lord, and I pray you'll take it a new, new higher level. Let people, faith promise their time and prayer, willing to get up all night long and pray for missions. Let people, faith promise, people from their cell, cell group, one out of ten will be going to the mission field. Let them faith promise their money, realizing it all belongs to you, God. It starts with you, it ends with you. We can't take anything with us from this earth. So show us today how we can give to impact the world. Where you're sitting, let God speak to you. What's the one thing he's saying to you? And say, yes, Lord, I hear you, I will obey. It's all about you, it's all about your kingdom. We want that mission lifestyle. We want to be a husband and wife that has a disciple-making lifestyle. We want to be a family where our kids also with us have disciple-making lifestyle. We want to be a congregation that marches to the beat of a different drummer, a disciple-making lifestyle. Use us today. Father God, right now as they're, they're praying about what figure they're going to write in their faith promise, I pray you'll guide their minds and their hearts. Guide their hands to to write what you're going to give them, what they in faith can believe above and beyond all they can ask or think you're going to give to them so they can give it to the world. Release something. Release an anointing of giving this, today in this place. I pray in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.